everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering another serial killer by the name of Paul Michael Stefani. Paul Stefani would become known not only for his heinous crimes against young women, but for his wavering, weepy voice when he called police to confess his crimes. After each attack, he considered what his actions meant in the eyes of God, and he feared an eternity in the fires of hell. Before we dive into the life and very brutal crimes of Paul Stefani, there's a couple things I wanted to mention. One, many of you have asked where our merch went, and I'm not sure if I already have mentioned this in previous episodes, but we have sort of moved our merch off from a third-party company that was sort of running it for us, and we're now working on getting our existing items that we have left in stock up on our new merch website, which I'll be sharing that link here soon. And also, we're going to start working on our next collection, which will hopefully be out in the next month or two. So just for those of you that were wondering where malhiremerch.com went, uh, it is down right now, but it will be back very soon. Also, in my hands, I have my Higher Love Wellness CBD Wax, and I'm going to go ahead and take a dab before we start this episode just to help calm me for this very, very horrific episode we're about to cover. CBD Wax is great because it does not get you high in the sense that other types of wax do. And this is why I like it so much is that it does provide that overall calm feeling that you're looking for. It tastes amazing. It smells amazing. I'm actually going to be dabbing some blueberry OG wax right now. So cheers, everybody. Cheers. Get it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> wow. So this is the Higher Love Wellness Turt Pen as well. This is the dab pen that I just used. It's super nice, super convenient. You can actually put a little bit of concentrate in the cap, take it with you wherever you go. It's really, really, really portable. I take it everywhere I travel with, along with my very, very delicious CBD wax, which comes in a couple different flavors. We have a watermelon haze and a pineapple express as well. There's no THC in it, so you don't have to worry about getting busted by the cops or anything like that if you live somewhere where it's not legal. And this stuff is legal in all 50 states, which is great. So if you haven't checked out Higher Love Wellness, you can get 10% off with code Lights Out. This is my company. It's family owned and operated. So come support the family biz. Again, that's higherlovewellness.com and use code lights out for 10% off. Try some for yourself. Uh, now that I'm feeling much more relaxed, but still very focused and with it. That's what I love about CBD is that it just helps take the edge off without making you feel that high feeling, you that's know, where you're just like, you want to sink into the couch mm-hmm. or go eat a whole bag of Doritos right now. <laughs> so even though that sounds amazing. Um, that's why I love CBD so much is that it allows you to focus. You can do it on your lunch break at work and you don't have to worry about, you know, red eyes or anything <laughs> right. like that coming back and everybody's yeah. judging you because or because you smell and reek. <laughs> yeah. So it's really good stuff. But anyways, let's go ahead and dive into the very dark case of the weepy voice killer. Paul Michael Stefani was born on September 8th, 1944 in Austin, Minnesota. He grew up in a big religious family of 10 children. His parents raised him as a devout Catholic, and he held on to his religion for his entire life, especially when things became toxic in his life at home. His parents divorced and remarried when Paul was just three years old. 
and he had a rough relationship with his stepfather. He was often abusive, verbally and physically, and if Paul or any of his siblings got in their stepfather's way, he would smack them and push them down the stairs. Not much else is known about Paul's childhood, and his early years remain mostly a mystery. After high school, though, he left home and moved to the Twin Cities, where he worked various jobs but struggled to hold one down for a long period of time. Most of his personal life has been kept private, but supposedly he had a wife and a daughter, but he divorced his wife and abandoned them altogether. He also had a girlfriend at one point, but she returned to her home in Syria, where her parents set up an arranged marriage. Paul felt betrayed after she left him, and he held on to this anger for many years. Many believe that his anger towards women grew over the years and manifested into violent urges, but he also held on to his religion, hoping it would guide him in the right direction. In the meantime, he bounced around from job to job in St. Paul and Minneapolis, which those two cities are known as the Twin Cities. And as he wandered through life without much purpose, he soon found something he was passionate about, the desperate need for violence. And he could no longer suppress his urges or the voices in his head that told him to murder young women. On a cold New Year's morning, January 1st, 1981, Karen Podak had been celebrating New Year's with her sisters. Karen was a 20-year-old Native American from northern Minnesota. Her sisters lived in the Twin Cities, and that night they all went out to a bar together. But at some point during the night, something upset Karen and she decided that she wanted to leave early. She was last seen around midnight, leaving the bar still drunk with a drink in her hand. They went home separately thinking that Karen had gotten a cab home, but she had stumbled into the alley where a stranger pulled up next to her in his car and offered her a ride home. A few hours later, Karen's sisters got a call from police as something had happened to Karen while she was on her way home. It was a dark, snowy night in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a busy night for police. At around 3 a.m., the station got a phone call from an anonymous caller, and the voice sounded like a high-pitched, weepy man. This man struggled to get through his words, but he was calling to report a dead body by the railroad tracks. Yes, please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to pass by the road. Malmberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop Police rushed over to the industrial railroad tracks where the caller claimed there was a body. The caller told police to send a squad car to Pierce Butler Road near Malberg Manufacturing Company machine shop. And sure enough, when police got there, they found a naked woman lying on a snowbank, and she was still alive but just barely. Red blood stained the snow beneath her, and it was clear that she had been severely beaten with a tire iron. Multiple wounds covered her head and neck. She had been bludgeoned over the head so many times that her skull had broken, and her brain was exposed. Blood poured profusely from her head, and as they put her on a stretcher and loaded her into the ambulance, she was just an inch away from death. When they searched the crime scene, detectives found buttons from her blouse that were 50 to 60 feet away from the area where the assault took place. Blood covered the ground where she was attacked, and inside of the victim's jean pocket they found her ID. And sure enough, it was 20-year-old college student, 
named Karen Podak. The police began their investigation by looking into Karen's past, and they wondered if her attacker knew her, or if it was just a random act of violence. After they rushed her to the hospital, doctors performed emergency surgery and saved her life. And when police later asked her questions about the attack, she unfortunately couldn't remember anything. The damage to her head had given her brain damage and memory loss, and she had no recollection of anything that had happened to her. The attacker didn't leave behind any physical evidence at the crime scene, so the only thing investigators had to work with was the phone call of the weepy-voiced man. And since this was the early 1980s, DNA evidence wouldn't be available until years later. So police sent the recording of the phone call into the University of Michigan, hoping that the voice recognition analysis would come up with something. But their tests led to a dead end, and it didn't take long before their investigation went cold entirely. On June 3, 1981, it was a clear spring day in St. Paul, Minnesota. 18-year-old Kimberly Compton got off the bus at the local Greyhound station. She decided to grab a bite to eat at the diner across the street. And when she opened the door, the place wasn't busy at all. Only a few other people filled the booths. And in the corner booth, a lonely man watched as Kimberly walked into the diner. After a few minutes of watching her, he got up from his booth walked over to her, and struck up a conversation. She had just gotten into town for the first time, so the man offered to show her around. She accepted the offer, and then she was never seen alive again. And later that day, the local police station got yet another strange phone call. Oh, you find me? I just stabbed somebody with a nice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. This time, the caller didn't give a location, nor did they explain what had happened. So the police just thought it was a prank phone call. They didn't make the connection to the weepy voice they had just heard months before. But hours later, they realized it was a real confession. That same day, a group of teenagers met up in a field at the edge of town. They threw around a football near an unfinished highway. And they were right beside the construction site for the highway where one of the teenagers noticed something colorful in the brush. It was then that he discovered the body of a young woman lying face down in the dirt lifeless. The boys immediately called the police and reported the body. The crime scene was a construction area for a roadway bypass for the nearby highway, and it was a place near the outskirts of town with low civilian traffic, which was the perfect place to hide a body. When police investigated the body, they noticed that she had dozens and dozens of stab wounds in her chest and stomach. Blood soaked through her white tank top that had a picture of a tiger on it, and there were also stab wounds on the inside of her thighs. The ground beneath her had turned into red mud from all the blood that she had lost. And after searching the area, the police didn't find any clues. Besides the body, they had absolutely nothing to work with. They transported the body to Ramsey County Medical Examiner's Office for an autopsy. And after the examiner investigated the body, he told detectives he was convinced the victim had been killed with an ice pick, which was an interesting weapon of choice. So police made a note of this. She'd also been strangled with a shoelace, but this wasn't the cause of death. After the medical examiner had counted the number of wounds, the culprit had stabbed the victim in the chest, stomach, and groin area a total of 62 times. Only a killer with extremely violent rage could stab their victim this many times. And as they searched through the victim's clothes, they found their first clue in the victim's pocket. They found a key to a locker. They later discovered that this key belonged to a locker at the local Greyhound bus depot on St. Peter's Street. When police opened the locker, 
they found two bags inside. They contained books and an ID of the victim. And this is how they found out that this woman was Kimberly Compton, only 18 years old. And when they contacted the victim's family, they found out that Kimberly had just moved to St. Paul the same day she was tragically murdered. She was originally from Pepin, Wisconsin. And after she graduated high school, she decided to move to St. Paul to find a job. She was known as friendly and outgoing by her family and friends, and she was easy to get along with. And people who were close to her said that she was very trustworthy. After they identified the victim, they realized that she had only been there a day. So their best plan was to try to figure out what her timeline was. They needed to know where she was between the Greyhound bus station and the highway construction zone. Eyewitnesses claimed she had crossed the street to Mickey's Diner after leaving the bus station and that she left with a strange man. So police listened back to the first call, and since the caller mentioned an ice pick as the weapon they used, police knew it had to have been the killer. Only the real killer would have known that Kimberly Compton was killed with an ice pick because the police didn't release this information to the media yet. They even tried to trace the phone call, but it was too short. And two days after her death, the St. Paul Police Department received another phone call. The call was recorded, which was standard practice. The detectives working on the case said that this phone call was one of the strangest things they'd ever experienced in their career. It was a man with a weepy voice talking about how he killed someone. And at first, they thought it might have been another prank call. But soon, they realized that this was a confession to murder. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day and I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Luckily, this time the call was long enough to be traced. The communications center traced the call to a bus station phone booth in town. So they dispatched several police officers to the area, and they questioned everyone they could find near this phone booth. But the suspect had gotten away before they could get there. They even tried dusting the phone booth for fingerprints, but it had been used so many times by so many people that it was impossible to just get the suspect's fingerprints. In the following days, they set up surveillance surrounding the bus station phone booth, hoping that they would catch the killer. They watched the phone booth for days, but the killer never returned. So they tried listening to the phone call again to see if they could find any additional clues. And since the caller had such a distinct voice, investigators went through the records to see if they could match the voice to any of their other unsolved crimes. They were looking for a weepy, high-pitched voice that sounded remorseful. And when they went back to look in the records, they found the phone call from New Year's when Karen Podak was assaulted. They now connected the same caller with two different attacks. And now that they connected them, they were worried he would attack again soon. The two main pieces of evidence that the police had to work with were the ice pick weapon and the phone calls. They released small clips of the phone calls to the local news station, hoping that someone would recognize the voice. Because he had such a distinct voice in the phone calls, they gave him the nicknames, the Weeper and the Weepy Voice Killer. They also set up a direct line to the police station for any tips the public could give them, and nearly 150 people called in claiming that they knew who the caller was. Everyone thought that they knew who the caller was, but police were never able to successfully identify the caller. And again, the case began going cold 
before their first suspect came to light. Two months after the murder of Kimberly Compton, St. Paul police got a call about a domestic dispute. And when police arrived, the suspect, Alan Lopez, had barricaded himself in the house. He lived there with his parents and sister, who he now held hostage at gunpoint. The SWAT team surrounded the house and set up sniper units outside. Police called the landline that was inside the house and began talking with Alan. As the conversation went on, Alan confessed that he was the weepy-voiced killer that had killed Kimberly Compton. After the standoff lasted a while longer, police decided to break down the front door and just storm the house. When they entered the house, Alan surrendered, but no one was left alive in the home, as he had killed his entire family. There beside him were the dead bodies of his parents and sister covered in blood. They arrested Alan and took him back to the police station. Although they had his confession, they needed more to connect him to the murder of Kimberly Compton. When they looked into Alan's background, they saw that he had a history of violence as well as mental illness. Since they needed evidence to connect him to the crimes, they began questioning people that knew Alan and asked if they knew where he was when the attacks were being committed. But their questioning quickly led to a dead end. Again, their best evidence was the weepy voice phone calls, so they tried to match Alan's voice with the original confession phone calls. Since they needed to compare a sample of Alan's voice when he sounded hysterical, they used the phone call recorded during the hostage situation. But their investigation came to a halt six months later when Alan Lopez committed suicide. And even though their primary suspect was dead, they still looked into his background to see if he was in fact the weepy voice killer. By then, they had connected Karen Podak's attacker with Kimberly Compton's murderer, so they knew whoever had attacked Karen must have also killed Kimberly. They soon found out that Alan Lopez had been a patient in a mental hospital just months before, and he had actually received a day pass to leave the hospital the day of her attack. But he wound up in prison on the night of New Year's Eve, so there was no way he could have attacked Karen. And again, their case was at a dead end. More months passed, and it seemed like the investigation was going nowhere. And whoever this weepy-voiced killer was, was still out there, waiting to strike again. On August 6, 1982, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 40-year-old Barbara Simmons decided to go out for a drink at the local watering hole called the Hexagon Bar. She had several drinks and danced to the jukebox music before talking to a strange man at the end of the bar. During the night, she even leaned over to the bartender and told him that she hoped the strange man she was talking to was nice because she needed a ride home. Later, she left the bar with the man and disappeared into the night. The next morning, a newspaper boy was out doing his regular deliveries near the Mississippi River, and as he rode his bike along the river, he noticed a pair of broken glasses on the ground beside him. He continued on past a few bushes where he spotted something on the ground. At first, he thought it was a crash test dummy, but as he got closer, he soon realized that it wasn't a dummy at all. He crouched down and shook the foot of the body in front of him, and he noticed that it was a woman. She was unresponsive, and dried blood coated her face and head. The boy quickly found a phone and called the police. Minneapolis Police Department showed up not long after, and the first thing they noticed was that the woman had been brutally murdered. She had been beaten and stabbed countless times, and the blunt object was circular, and police thought the weapon might have been the handle of an ice pick. Seeing the carnage that was left behind, police suspected that whoever committed the murder had some extremely pent-up aggression. She had been beaten on the head and stabbed multiple times in the chest and stomach. She was almost unrecognizable. They also couldn't find any identification on the body, and the autopsy didn't reveal anything of interest. 
When they investigated the crime scene, they noticed that the victim had been dragged across the ground and hidden in the brush. The murder was too calculated to be a spur-of-the-moment crime of passion. It seemed like someone had planned to attack this woman and hide her near the river. Minneapolis police began looking back at the other unsolved murders trying to connect them. And two days after the murder of the latest victim, Minneapolis PD received another phone call. And it was the same weepy voice from all the other St. Paul Police Department phone calls. Please don't talk to this I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my chief. Oh, I don't know what's the matter me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? Uh, gonna, uh, if somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me. I killed both The Minneapolis Police Department immediately contacted St. Paul PD, and they let them know how they found another victim and got another phone call from the weepy voice killer. And now they knew for certain that Alan Lopez wasn't the killer. By now, it had been a year and a half since the first attack on Karen. After their third victim, police could now identify the killer's patterns, and they identified what they call the killer's mark. And his mark was how he was compelled to call the police and confess his crime after every attack. They described it as a man going into a juvenile state, confessing his crimes, but also playing a cat-and-mouse game with police. Even though he sounded remorseful in the phone calls, he was calling police to take credit for the murders. He couldn't stop killing, and he wanted the police to know. Investigators kept focusing on the phone calls, trying to match the voice with a suspect. They also desperately needed to identify their third victim. Eventually, a postal worker found the victim's purse in a mailbox near the Greyhound bus station in St. Paul and the ID that they found in the purse belonged to Barbara Simmons, the 40-year-old nurse who lived in South Minneapolis. She was known as a very kind woman with a laid-back personality, and she knew everyone in the neighborhood and made friends easily. On the night that she was murdered, the bartender and the waitress at work that night remember seeing Barbara. The bartender noticed the man giving him a dirty look. He remembered he was a white man in his early 40s, about 6 feet tall and nearly 300 pounds, muscular, and he had a mustache. This was the investigator's first promising description of the suspect. They went through 147 mugshots of anyone who had a violent history, hoping they'd come across their killer. They tried to narrow it down by the bartender's description of the man that night. They made a lineup of eight mugshots and had the bartender and waitress go through each one. The bartender from the hexagon easily identified one of the pictures. And sure enough, the man they identified was Paul Michael Stefani. Paul had a previous assault conviction from years before, so police dug further into his background, and what they found was that he had a life of consistent crime in the Twin Cities, and he could never hold down a job for very long. They also soon found out that he had worked at the Malberg Manufacturing Company, which was where they had found Karen Podak after she was assaulted, and police finally had a break in their case, and Paul Stefani immediately became their prime suspect, so they decided to set up surveillance outside of his apartment building. Before we continue, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So one night, Paul Stefani left his apartment and got into his car. The surveillance team followed him into the city, but after a while, they lost sight of him. He might have suspected that he was being followed or maybe the police just lost him by accident. But either way, he ended up in the red light district where he picked up a 19-year-old sex worker named Denise Williams. Her normal rate was $100, but Paul only had $40 on him so he decided to make a deal with her. He told her that he would give her the $40 and promised that after they had sex that he would give her the other $60 when they got back to his house. 
Surprisingly, he stuck to his promise. She made her $100 and Paul even offered to drop her off back at the red light district. She agreed and they got back into the car. But on the way back, Denise noticed that he wasn't taking the usual roads back to the red light district. It seemed that they were headed somewhere else. Paul took a turn down a dark road with no streetlights. They passed by several warehouses where it looked like there was no one around, and Denise began to panic. When she asked him why they were taking these roads, he told her not to worry, as he was just taking a different way back. But Denise could sense he was lying. She had been a sex worker since the age of 13, and knew these streets of the city well. Her fight-or-flight senses triggered, and she knew she was in immediate danger. And since she couldn't flee, she knew she had to fight. But Paul was a heavy, six-foot-tall man, and Denise was a rather small woman, so she had to think quick. As Paul pulled down another dark street, Denise noticed something bump into her foot on the car floor. It was a shiny glass bottle. Or in Denise's mind, the perfect weapon. As Paul stopped the car, she knew with 100% certainty that Paul's going to attack her, as there was no reason to stop on a dark, deserted street. But at that exact moment, Denise thought about reaching down for the glass bottle. Paul was too quick. He had already pulled out a screwdriver and plunged it into her stomach. But there was no way Denise was going down without a fight. Despite her wound, she reached down and got a hold of the bottle, and with her right hand, she swung it straight into Paul's head, where it shattered across his face. Blood exploded out of Paul's face and sprayed into Denise's eyes. But neither were willing to give up the fight. Paul kept stabbing her, and Denise kept hitting him with the jagged bottle. Denise eventually got the car door open, and they both stumbled out. But Paul overpowered her and climbed on top of her where he continued to stab her in the stomach and chest. But Paul had made one crucial mistake. He thought he had chosen an isolated area in the warehouse district, but there were houses nearby. A man named Doug had his windows open and heard the commotion. Denise screamed at the top of her lungs, so the neighbor ran to see what was going on. And that's where he saw the large man on top of Denise stabbing her. He could even hear his weapon puncturing her skin and breaking her bones. Doug told him to stop and even approached Paul. But when he got too close, Paul swung the screwdriver at him and threatened to kill him too if he got in the way. So Doug ran as fast as he could back to his house and called the police. And since Paul knew someone had spotted him, he knew he had to flee as fast as possible. So he jumped back into his car and sped home. Denise lied there on the ground, bleeding out from her multiple stab wounds. At the same time, police got a phone call from Doug telling them that a woman had been attacked and needed help. When police arrived, they found Denise lying on the ground. She had been stabbed 13 times in the torso, and her blood pooled on the cement beside her. They transported her to the hospital where she eventually recovered from her wounds. And not long after Denise's attack, police got yet another phone call. It was the voice of a man saying he needed an ambulance at Westminster. Need an ambulance? Where? 1505 Westminster. 1505? Yes. Westminster, what's the problem? I'm all cut up. I got beat up. What's your apartment number? 208. I'm bleeding. 208. Where are you bleeding from? From my arm, my face, my head. But this time his voice was normal, and he didn't sound weepy at all. After the call, the surveillance team at Paul's apartment noticed an ambulance rushing to his apartment. They thought it was strange that Paul would call for help. Normally, criminals would never call for help because that's how they can easily get caught. But in this case, Paul might have realized that it was a life-or-death situation. Blood was streaming from his head and his face, and he didn't know what to do. Meanwhile, in the hospital, they showed Denise over a dozen photographs of potential suspects, and she identified Paul as her attacker. 
Police also found blood spattered across the front seats of Paul's car. And it wasn't long after this that the police arrested Paul Stefani. Once they treated his wounds, they brought Paul back to the station and sat him in the interrogation room, where they hoped he would confess to the weepy voice killings. When police asked him what had happened to his face, Paul said he was assaulted during a robbery. Police decided to run with that narrative, even though they knew he was lying. So they made Paul feel like he was a victim, hoping that he would start opening up about his crimes. He kept calm and held a low tone of voice, so he wouldn't sound like he did when he made those weepy phone calls. It wasn't long before the interrogator pulled out a file and showed Paul pictures of all of his victims. He placed each photo one by one in front of him, and they showed the gruesome aftermath of his crimes. Each woman was either lying dead or being hauled away on a stretcher, and they reminded Paul of the shame and remorse that he felt afterwards. The memories of each attack flashed over and over in his mind. After looking at the pictures, Paul's eyes began fluttering, and he got up from his seat with a distressed look in his face. He told the interrogator that there was no way he was going to pin those crimes on him. But the more that he looked at the photos, Paul's voice began to shift. Instead of keeping his low, calm voice, it changed into a high-pitched, weepy voice. The interrogator explained that it was like watching someone change their personalities right before his eyes. With a suspicious change in his voice, the eyewitness confirming Paul's identity at the Hexagon Bar, and Denise Williams pointing him out in a photograph lineup, Police formally arrested Paul for the murder of Barbara Simmons and the assault on Denise Williams. As word spread around town, the locals were relieved to hear that the suspect was in custody, and soon after, the DA began building the case against Paul. But one major problem they had was that they had almost no evidence for the Karen Podak or Kimberly Compton cases. They only had the weepy voice confessions. They also had to deal with two jurisdictions since the murders and assaults happened in either of the Twin Cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis. So in the end, they decided that they could only charge Paul with the assault against Denise Williams and the murder of Barbara Simmons. They also struggled with finding a motive for the murders, so they looked into Paul's history to try and figure out why he wanted to attack women. They found out that he was raised in a strict Catholic family, and investigators thought this played a crucial role in his behavior. They believed that because of his Catholic upbringing, this was what caused him to call the police and confess his crimes, since Catholics believe that confession absolves sin. So in a way, his confessions to police were also meant to be Paul asking for forgiveness. When police considered why Paul picked the victims that he did, they found out that he had a romantic past with an ex-girlfriend, but she eventually returned to her home in Syria where she had an arranged marriage, and police believe that Paul saw this as a betrayal and his rage built up over the years, and he eventually redirected that rage towards his victims. On February 28, 1984, Paul Stefani stood trial in the Hennepin County Courthouse in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The prosecution's biggest piece of evidence was the voice comparison to the weepy voice phone call recordings. The prosecutors wanted to bring in a voice expert to compare the recordings to Paul's voice, but this brought up a debate between the defense and the prosecution. In the end, the judge didn't allow the expert to testify because he didn't believe the expert's opinion would prove any fact in the case knowing that one of their most important pieces of evidence couldn't be used to its fullest potential. The prosecution had to change tactics. So they brought in Paul's ex-wife, his neighbor, and his sister to listen to his voice recordings to confirm that the voice in the phone calls was indeed Paul's. When they played the recordings, Paul's sister took off her headphones and broke down crying. She knew it was Paul's voice the moment she heard it, and she openly admitted it in court when she testified. His ex-wife and the neighbor also agreed. This became one of the most critical moments in the case. 
and despite the testimonies, Paul pled not guilty. But by the end of the trial, it was obvious to the jury that he was guilty. Paul Stefani was convicted of murder and assault, and the judge sentenced him to 18 years for the assault and an additional 40 years for the murder. Besides the eyewitness's testimony, his weepy voice ultimately led to his conviction. Unfortunately, the case of Kimberly Compton and Karen Podak didn't go to trial for lack of evidence. The good news was that Paul was off of the streets, but the bad news was that there wasn't any closure for the families of those two victims. In 1997, Paul spent his time in a level 5 maximum security prison called Oak Park Heights in Stillwater, Minnesota. He wanted to clear his conscience after a decade in prison, so a prison guard made a phone call to Sergeant Joe Corcoran, who had worked the Weepy Voice killer case. He said that Paul wanted to talk to him, and if Joe did him a favor, he would confess to everything. So Joe sent two investigators to the Oak Park Heights prison and told them to find out what Paul wanted. Paul told investigators that he wanted them to go out to the cemetery where his mother was buried and take a picture of her headstone. If they could do that, Paul would tell them everything. So they did what he asked, and Paul stayed true to his word. He confessed to the attack on Karen Podak and the murder of Kimberly Compton, which didn't surprise police at all. Here's some of that confession tape. Do you remember where you hit her with the tire and Paul? And then did you hit her one time, two times, and then must have been about 30 times, but I mean a good, good 20 times, I think I know. I remember just hitting her mainly on the forehead, on the cheek, and the jaw, the mouth, top of the head. And I think it was only about 10 times, but then I know she, she must really be hurt in that, you know, the steel bar like that. I was even hurt when I went back to the car. There, there's going like this. I mean, and that's what I'm going to maybe want to go to the phone. I mean, I really want to help her. Look, my mind started clearing up. What are you doing? You had a chance to make another friend that kept yelling at myself. As I walked out of the car, I carried my knife with me. I had every intention to hurt me. I laid down in the grass, and I remember opening up a bra and uh, bra and everything. I'm just feeling it. But then he confessed to another murder that police never connected him to. The only problem was Paul couldn't remember what the woman's name was, where she lived, or what her phone number was. He almost couldn't remember anything about her besides the fact that he killed her. He remembered that he drowned her in a bathtub where she lived. And since that's all they had to go on, investigators looked back at old cases of freshwater drownings, hoping to find the victim. They specifically went back and looked at the years Paul was actively attacking his victims, and after looking back at a number of different old cases, they finally found his victim. Her name was Kathleen Greening, and the way she died was much different compared to the other victims. She lived just outside of St. Paul, and she was a 33-year-old school teacher, and on July 21, 1982, her friend Carol Kellogg arrived at Kathleen's house. They had been planning to go on a trip together, but when Carol knocked on the door, there was no answer. When she reached for the door handle, she noticed it was unlocked, so she let herself in. As she looked around the house, there was no sign of Kathleen, but she noticed that the bathroom door was half open and the light was on. As she pushed open the door, she saw Kathleen dead in the bathtub. Her eyes were open but completely lifeless, and her skin had gone pale. In her case file, her cause of death had been labeled undetermined. Police initially looked at the husband and suspected him of killing his wife, but when Paul confessed to the murder... He knew things only the murderer would know. Here's some of that confession. You say that you both got into the tub? Yes. And you sh- you're positive about that? Yes. Because, I mean, when I, I remember when I pushed her head underwater, I could see her face. Did you push her in by her 
push her head down or did you push her in the chest area to, under the water? Or I held her shoulders down. You held her shoulders down? Both hands then? Paul could accurately describe the apartment where he killed Kathleen, and he admitted to taking her purse and stuffing it in a mailbox. The evidence of the purse being in the mailbox was never released to the public, so police knew that only the killer would know this information. Paul had killed Kathleen only two weeks before he killed Barbara Simmons, but he never called police and confessed his crimes like he did with his other victims. When they asked him why he changed up his killing patterns, he said that he didn't know why he did what he did. He claimed that voices in his head urged him to commit murder. He also confessed that after one of the murders, he went to church, sat in a back pew, and cried. When an interviewer asked him why he confessed to his other crimes later in life, he admitted that he had been diagnosed with terminal skin cancer, and he only had a year left to live, and he wanted to finally clear his conscience and get right with God. In the same way he admitted to police after he killed his victims, he was hoping that his sins would be forgiven if he confessed to all of his crimes. In the end, he confessed to an assault in 1980 murdering Kimberly Compton in 1981, drowning Kathleen Greening, and stabbing Barbara Simmons to death in 1982, as well as attacking Denise Williams that same year. Five victims total, and only two survived. On June 12, 1998, Paul Stefani died in the infirmary of the Oak Park Heights prison. In the year before he died, he admitted that he might have deserved to go to hell, but he was going to leave his judgment up to God. Many believe that despite the fact that Paul called police after committing his killings, that he never thought he would be caught. And if it wasn't for his recordings, Paul still may have been out there committing many more killings until his death. With that being said, we're going to wrap up today's episode there. I want to know in the comments if you think Paul was really sorry for his crimes or if his phone calls to police or just a way for him to take credit for what he had done. Make sure you're following us on YouTube and Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts, and as well as on Twitter and Instagram at LightsOutCast. Definitely. We will see you guys next week with another very spooky haunting episode. And until then, Lights Out. Hey, everybody.